So as you know, obviously, right, we are recording our own audiobook. Yeah, we're getting ready to do that really soon. So I've been watching all kinds of content to try to get like voice exercises, right? Like trying to figure out oh. like, where I'm going to get inspiration. Started watching and just like that, Carrie Bradshaw records her own audiobooks. Oh, okay. Spoiler, she also pretends to get COVID midway through to get out of said assignment. <laughs> what? Why does she want to get out of it? So that's a huge spoiler. However, I feel like we need new audiobook inspo ASAP because that is not working. <sighs> Damn. And just like that, <laughs> our inspiration is gone. <laughs> going to Dolls for Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm Carrie. No, I'm still Allison. I had to check. <laughs> That's so sad. Like I thought you were about to hit me with some real inspo because I'm like, I really was searching myself like, okay, what are great audiobooks I've heard? And honestly, and this is not like a feminist answer, but they were all like British man who read Hillary Mantel's books. And like, I can't like go to the director and be like, I would like to appear as a British man. Like, it's not a good look for an American girl project. Like I just, I don't feel like people want to hear that. I think I can't do accents either. That's another like limitation of mine. No, you do have to be yourself. And I think the two exemplars of the past year or two are probably Jeanette McCurdy and Prince Harry. (sighs) Prince Harry's audiobook was too hot to handle. Again, a British man. So I need to step away from that. But um, I did just read Samantha Irby's new book. I didn't listen to the audiobook, but I have listened to her audiobooks in the past, which are excellent. So that's another, I guess, example we can throw to. I don't really know what's important in terms of reading an audiobook. It is exciting to get to read it. Carrie Bradshaw does not want to read hers for a very specific set of reasons. Again, they are big, but I don't want to give them away. Wow. But that becomes the least of everyone's problems in this season. So if you like hung in there through the whole season, write to me. I do feel like the only person the universe is rooting for is John Corbett. He's in another My Big Fat Greek Wedding movie. They just keep calling it the same thing. But now there are three of them and he reprised his role as Aiden. He's (gasps) the only winner of 2023. I think that's fair. And you know what? I think why he's winning is because he he has found his lane and he's staying in it. Where he's like, you need me to play the non-Greek member of this family who sort of <laughs> expresses wonder of the audience as outsiders. I can do that. You want me to play Aiden for 20 plus years, basically, like pick up where I left off? I can do that too. An old interview of him surfaced wherein he mentions that the character of Aiden on Sex and the City was meant to be very minor and very quickly written out. And people started sending him little tiny pieces of wooden furniture unfinished saying, don't leave your character unfinished too, because he is a furniture maker in the series. And in his reprisal of the role, he's sold a ton of his stuff and his business to West Elm. Like this show has no no standards for anyone. And I love it. I just think it's like, I'm kind of waiting till I have time to marathon it. Cause I think I found with season one, it was easier for me if I could just sort of watch it in chunks than like one episode at a time. So I have read some recaps, so I kind of know what happens. It doesn't like affect anything for me, but Samantha Irby's book also, um, cause she wrote on this season of, and just like that, which I didn't realize, but she has a whole section in her book about ranking Carrie's boy past boyfriends. And it's just sort of seems like from reading that and like hearing you talk about it, like it's it's embraced like the camp at the center of the show. But it also kind of like, is the show a drama or a comedy? Like a genuine question. I think that the authors or sorry, the writers have refused to decide. And I think that's OK, because I also find that some of the American girl writing resists genre. Like, I have read American girl books before and thought to myself, what was that? Yeah. I mean, I had that feeling pretty recently, actually. I do think that Julie Albright could be a storyteller of the caliber needed for HBO. Uh, I think that's 100% 
true. I think, you know, she would be working in the documentary film unit. And I started watching that telemarketer show, by the way, I've only seen the first episode, but I'm enjoying what I've seen so far. I don't know if anyone else has seen it, but you know, I could see her doing that, maybe getting an NPR internship. Like she really, in this book, nailed doing some sound effects that some might call like two on the nose to open up the story, which is like a very NPR move. Julie tells her story is a dramedy. It's Shakespearean. It moved me. It made me laugh. It baffled me. It was filled with surprises. I don't know what this book was about, but it delighted me. Yep. I, you know, a lot of this book like hit hard because she does something that I did as a child, which I will discuss in depth, but Mm -hmm. I've mentioned my interest in recording before. I enjoyed this book very much. What else are you enjoying before we get into book two, Julie Tells Her Story? Wow. Um, What an intro. I'm reading a lot of mysteries. We were just talking about Wishbone on our Patreon episode. And I'm reading one, a series by Val McFarland, who is new to me, but she is a Scottish, I think, mystery writer and has a series where she follows an investigative journalist um, between decades. So the first book is 1979. I read 1989. Now reading 1979 because I accidentally picked them up out of order. I'm reading a book called Loot, which is set in, um, I think, present day India. And it's like sort of following like colonization from um, within like the Indian context. And it follows like a French clockmaker who is sent by the court to impress like this group they're hoping to colonize a local leader and then like a local person who is good at making to- like automatons basically or toys and like how they come together to make some like on command to make something and learn from each other. I'm not describing it well, but it's very, very good. I read Samantha Irby's book, which was very funny. So, I mean, that's kind of lighting me up. I'm also like reading inexplicably about Elvis for like a topic I'm interested in bibliotherapy related. So that's kind of what's lighting me up. Like Allison, what's going on with you? For summer reads, I really loved Vacation Land, which came out last year. It's by Meg Mitchell Moore. It's kind of mm-hmm. like a townie versus vacationer book that I enjoyed very much. Our August book club pick for Patreon was Wait Till Helen Comes, which I had never read as a young person by Mary Downing Hahn. Thank you to everyone who suggested that. If you're looking for a book that you can easily read in a sitting or two that is just like absolutely delightful. It reminds me a lot of Stone Words, which we covered on the Patreon mm. about this time last year. Very fun fall read. I also love an Alice Hoffman. I will read anything she writes as evidenced by my love for The Invisible Hour, which is her brand mm. new book that I really, really liked. Also want to super recommend The Breakaway by Jennifer Weiner. I love just about everything that she writes. There's like very few exceptions. I really, really enjoyed that book. I, I enjoyed it a lot. So not as maybe not as much as Julie tells her story, but like pretty darn close. Okay, I mean, I'm always looking for new books, so I'm excited. I will add those to my to read list. I mean, it's hard. We should we need to get into Julie because there's so much in this book. I mean, it's about like 75 pages, but it contains multitudes. Um, Yeah. I have to say Julie is like really up there for me for like all time favorite American girls. Like I am so into Julie, like I can't even handle it. And this book, like you said, had me feeling so many feelings. I was just laughing. I was staring into space. I was asking why existential questions. I can't wait to get into this. So like, I think we should just jump right into Julie. I'll give us a quick summary. And please note that this book is set in 1975. Julie is enjoying working on her school project, The Story of My Life, until she comes to the part about the worst thing that ever happened. That would be her parents' divorce, and she doesn't want to tell her class about that. Julie tries to find a different, worse thing to tell about, and after her big basketball game, she thinks maybe she's found the solution to her problem. But as her parents and sister rally around her, Julie finds herself thinking about her family in a new and more hopeful way. That is not a good synopsis of this book. Nope. This is about a girl in a recorder. (laughs) This is about a girl... This is about a recorder from Japan. This is about a loss of innocence, both as a nation and as a family and as a girl (laughs) and a basketball game and a plant, a spider plant. 
It's about many things. I don't actually like, I can't fault the person who did the summary because <laughs> I don't even know how I would describe this book. This should canonically be a Julie learns a lesson book, right? Yes. But this is this is like Kaya era where they're playing with format and Rebecca yes. goes a little bit back to like old school six book. But basically it's like Julie needs to be in school. Julie's already learned the greatest lesson of all about bureaucracy in book one. And they're like, table it. She's going to learn another lesson. As I told you, I kept like nervously during the first 20 or so pages of this book, flipping to the back to make sure I was in fact reading the second book in the series, because I always expect it to be called Learns a Lesson. It's not. And what really threw me was like book one, and we can't stress this enough for people not reading along with us, is so much about her pursuit of getting on the basketball team. That the <laughs> fact that it's just like we've jumped forward in time. Like her coach and the gym teacher was cartoonishly evil in book one. Now that's all been wiped away. It's just accepted she's on the team. There's no mention of any discomfort in like onboarding the team, going to practice. She and the coach have no beef anymore, it seems like. I don't know, it never comes up. Or her teammates. It's like she's just on the team. We're moving on. We're pivoting to other parts of life. She is given a big homework assignment, which she's not thrilled about. Julie is not happy that she has had to move for many reasons that we'll get into. But a primary one is that she doesn't go to school with her best friend anymore. So she's making a new friend and she feels as though like the standards are higher, like they're too high in Ms. Hunter's class. The story of my life assignment asks her to document her first memory, brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. when mom was my age, when dad was my age the best thing that ever happened to me and the worst thing that ever happened to me. Like it's giving first date, Miss Hunter. I was going to say like, what? Oh, Miss Hunter, <laughs> like Ms. Hunter. Ms. Hunter. Ms. Ma'am, lady. <laughs> what inspired these questions? Like, where is this coming from? And like, were you at a consciousness raising meeting? Were you on a first date? And you were like, you know what? I need to brush up on my skills, like my self-narration. And I wish I had started sooner to be able to handle like networking, first dates, whatever. I'm going to help these kids like start out young, like learning how to like, you know, process self-narrate. She wants a page per topic. She's not playing around. She's very serious. And the way that this is presented to the class, Julie included, is that this is a way to brush up on their investigative skills. Here's what I think went on. Ms. Hunter is from the East Coast. Hear me out. She's actually from the DMV. Why is this important? Wow. Ms. Hunter was like one to two degrees of separation away from Woodward and Bernstein. I don't make the rules. This is just how it was. She is a woman scorned by someone in that social circle. She has now made it her life's quest to train the next generation of like spotlight reporters like top tier people in the country because she won't let that happen again she's like i can't wow. let a journalist get too close she's like, i have to <laughs> push all of them oh away oh my god this book addresses watergate oh yeah i mean there's nothing that this book <laughs> is not going to cover we're jumping into watergate we're jumping into surveillance state we're jumping into family stuff we're jumping into basketball i mean what's interesting is she doesn't cover like the ethics under which you should be reporting the answers to these questions. And I just want to flag, like having any child discuss the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Like, what is the purpose of that? Like, what's the end game? Like in an educational setting, any setting, like getting a child to get up in front of your entire class and say, here's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Like, uh, like what, what educational philosophy is that coming out of? I think she's playing with fire. I think she's also dating someone who she like halfway knows is in the FBI and is infiltrating, you know, different radical groups, including the Black Panthers. And so she's like, wow. let me just see what people will offer up about mom and dad, right? Like she's actually going to turn these reports over. We learn that Julie is not surprised that the Fountain Girls, these are kind of her like low-key enemies. Like they're thrilled because the best things that have happened to them are trips to the Grand Canyon and a story about parents on a second honeymoon getting shark teeth. Um, We also learn like, you know, a whimsical story about a mom being a twin. Identical twin. Which I wrote that in my notes because I was like, this is disturbing. Basically, someone's like, oh my God, I could tell the story about how 
my mom and her identical twin sister almost like fooled my dad into marrying my aunt on their wedding day. Like, ha 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 ha. And I'm, I'm like, not sure I'm sorry. That's funny. I'm sorry. Can we all pause on that for a moment? Like basically this classroom assignment is unearthing a lot of weird family trauma that needs to be discussed. Like we're going to learn that friend TJ's worst thing is a family routine about haircuts. And like, it's pretty bad, but it's not nearly kind of like what other people are going through. I think that, you know, Ms. Hunter should have laid down some ground rules because we're kind of getting like a gamut of options. What Ms. Hunter did not anticipate, and she really should have like given all of her connections, is the fact that Julie is going to like work this recorder hard. Yeah. And and we need to back up for a minute because basically like the teacher has sort of instructed them to do one page per question. So implying this Correct. is going to be a written challenge. She's also writing cursive or IP, except it's coming back <laughs> some places in the South. But, you know, she ends up like going to dad's house. Again, Tracy is not going on these weekend visits to dad's house. And she's like, kind of feeling embarrassed to share with the dad um this assignment because the thing that she thinks about first is like the worst thing that ever happened to her was her parents getting divorced and actually i thought the use of language was interesting because on page one onto page two she says her family had gotten divorced like she's thinking Mm. to herself the family got divorced not my parents so it's like very personal and she ends up telling the dad about the assignment and he's kind of hemming and hawing and like being weird And she's like feeding an apple peel to the pet rabbit. And it's like kind of whatever, but he disappears. And he's like, Hey girl, I I was going to save this for Christmas, but I got you like this tape recorder in Japan, which is like, wow, like low key flex to having a dad who can like bring you gifts from Japan. Their conversation is hard for me to follow because like dad's sort of like emotional shield is using sports language. Yes. That was a very weird scene. (laughs) So when it didn't make sense. They're having their conversation. Dad says, time out, foul. He blocks her. And then he's like, wait a second. What if I handed you this portable tape recorder? It'll be great for your interviews, don't you think? If you plug in the microphone here and put in a blank tape, you can use it to record people. Dad, what are you doing? Like in the climate of Watergate, he hands her a recorder and there's like no conversation about like, ha ha ha, like the president was recording people without telling them and also himself came back to bite him. So, you know, like maybe think about it before you do that. But also like we we have no understanding. This is kind of like a real dad gift where it's like there's no impulse to understand or any inkling that she's going to want a recorder. Like she's not a musician She's not, you know, emerging journalist yet. Maybe she is now. I don't know. But he was like, here you go. We learned very quickly that both Ivy and Julie have a future in Foley production because mm-hmm. basically in, in what is my worst, like, misophonia nightmare, Ivy proceeds to, like, slurp on things and make a variety <laughs> of noises and then record them up close And being the good friend that she is, Julie's like, that's very cool. Yeah, that's fair. And honestly, to me, I was like, wow. I mean, the stuff they were choosing to record was like shoes tapping across a table and like a (laughs) toilet flushing. And Ivy pretends that she's being flushed down the toilet. But to me, as like someone who appreciates (laughs) ASMR, I was like, you guys could have chosen a different path and done like scissor sounds. And I would have fallen asleep to that. And I would have appreciated you for a lifetime. But that's not, you know, they're not there yet as Foley artists, as ASMR professionals. It's just not where they are. But the first person thrown in the hot seat, and so Julie decides to start interviewing people, is dad. Yeah. Fortunately or unfortunately, basically dad tries to throw technology at the problem, which is that he doesn't want to talk about himself. But then Julie comes back with a vengeance and she's like, I need to know something formative about your life. We're going to learn that mom is a horse girl, but we learn that some of the athleticism comes from dad. And that he had an injury that really, like, changed his life and changed his perception on, like, what it means to suffer. Yes. So he tells this story about how he and his friends all wanted a bike in Minnesota growing up and he couldn't afford one. So they all, like, like basically got a bike from the trash and restored it together and then took turns riding it. And he fell off the bike and broke his foot. And the like subtle, like a freight train lesson that he wants Julie and by extension us to learn is this quote on page 15 that he says, basically, like I the doctor told me something I've always remembered, quote, in the spot where the bone was broken, it actually knits itself back together stronger than before. 
And Julie's like, whoa, um, okay. <laughs> and to me, I'm like, dad is like being like, so like, like man in this, like, do you know, I mean, I'm going to quote Ernest Hemingway. I apologize in advance, but like, this is not my personality, but I do know this quotation. I was like, the author is like basically allowing dad to like lift directly from Ernest Hemingway because one of the most famous lines in a farewell to arms is the world breaks everyone. And afterward, men, you're strong at the broken places. And it's like, dad, like you're kind of like Hemingwaying your way through this school project. And by extension, like your new normal in this family. And like, I don't know if he's the guy you want to throw to. Also, the knowledge that dad didn't bathe for a month. I don't know that that's like actually a condition of what he had going on. They didn't have Axe body spray back then, Allison. So it was like, it was harder. No, but we're having a heartfelt moment with dad and it gets into a division of labor question, which is upon her return home, there's meatloaf cooking. Like that's kind of exciting. But basically, there's this bigger beef that I hope that we're uh, no that we're going to understand better, which is why Tracy won't go to dad's because now Tracy is frustrated that Julie yes. does not want to do dishes because Tracy has had to do the dishes in her absence. Why is Tracy not going to dad's? Tracy has a lot of daddy issues and clearly is projecting onto dad as like being the villain in the divorce. But like that has made it clear that that's kind of what's going on but we're never privy to a conversation like in book one he goes back in the house when tracy won't come out and get in the car to go to his house and clearly they have some exchange and we don't get to hear what that is and even when she comes back in julie who by the way comes in kind of sassy and is like pretending to be a radio announcer recording and she's like here's mom quote making a rare appearance in the kitchen and it's like okay julie we get it like your mom works now like chill out like i like dad doesn't get these kind of comments when he's like peeling an apple for you to feel to feed to your rabbit but whatever um but like you know tracy has an attitude about having to do the dishes and it's like she also has an attitude about dad and we're never told like what do you think is going on I I do think part of like her being able to narrate the mom in that way is like dad is now such like a distant guest star in her life, whereas like the mom is really kind of the center of her universe. I think what we learn about Tracy in this book is that she has a lot of secrets and that even when people are literally recording her, they're not getting her story right. They aren't because I think something that's going on in this book, and this is going to sound like I'm making this over serious and I don't think I am, is like, I think like narrative is like a really important, like actual subject of this book. Like not only like recording people's stories about themselves, but like Julie in a meta way, trying to figure out her own story for herself. Like what is the worst thing that's ever happened to me? Or like, how can I in telling, changing the telling of the story of my parents getting divorced, like maybe change how I feel about it. And Tracy is clearly going through something very similar where she's like, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am in this family anymore. I don't know how to feel about anything. But she's kind of like it's coming out sideways with like her over like concern with this plant that she has to take care of as part of a biology project. She gets a spider plant and she has to take care of it. And it's like you would think this was like a real child. No offense to plants should they have feelings. But I'm just saying like if this plant dies like you get another plant, you you swap it in and out. You could probably still well do well on the assignment, like whatever. No, and, and not to jump too far ahead, but we've like teased it a little bit. Julie goes from like directly recording people in a kind of fun way. Like she and Ivy have fun with making noises and recording them. She interviews dad. She interviews mom. Like they understand that they're on tape. She then rigs up a way to like surveil her sister And I think this is where it's a comment on, like, surveillance-obsessed America and Nixon. Like, literally, she gets stuff on tape, but she doesn't get the story right. Like, she's still missing. She, like, is literally becoming obsessed with the recording of things, but doesn't actually have a pulse on what's going on, right? What it means, yeah. The presidential obsession with having everything recorded, everything surveilled, but still, like, not actually having a grip on, like, what's going on in your own office or or leaks or other kinds of issues. There is something that's cool about when she sits down with mom to have mom kind of narrate a story to her. But I think you're spot on that the challenge in this book is like the lead is the parents breaking up and choosing to separate into two households. 
And the other lead is like, how did Julie get onto this basketball team and quickly become like a very well integrated and beloved member? We don't actually like get any of those gaps filled in in this book. Mm. No, we don't like and, and it's weird that in a story about like following the story, we get so little information that would actually allow us to put the pieces together. And I think like starting with her parents, like having her talk to dad and he tells a story about the bike and then she goes home and interviews mom and mom shares a story about having a horse. Like, first of all, she gets a horse as a birthday gift as a child. And I'm like, um, I'm sorry, who gets a horse as a gift? Yeah, it's giving Felicity, especially with the name Firefly, like. Uh, yeah, big time. And basically like the horse was stung by a bee and like was like jumping or like seemed ornery when she first got it and it made her afraid to ride for a while and they called it Firefly or whatever, like end of story. But it's like this nice moment where she's kind of like, wow, my mom was a child once. And like, she understands like, oh, like my parents are people like they were children once. Now they're my parents. You kind of get some complexity on like maybe their lives a little bit or just like it had nods to that head fakes. But then it sort of like points to the fact that we're not getting that same complexity for like Julie or Tracy, or it's like it's messier with them because they're children and they're figuring it like they're kind of figuring themselves out still. And in this new context, they're trying to figure out. And it's like there's a lot of questions, but I think like the messiest part of this book by (laughs) her choice is when Julie, you know, has wrapped up with her parents and she's like, okay, I got to get Tracy on tape. And Tracy wants zero part of it. Tracy is very obsessed with her plant assignment, and she has decided that she's going to name the plant Charlotte in honor of Charlotte's Web, and she's very hot on this. I also think it's telling that, like, both the parents are setting her up for the fact that, like, things don't always go as planned, right? Like, dad Mm. goes over the handlebars, mom experiences the horse getting spooked. Julie, out of nowhere, has an interest in babysitting. We're not sure where that Never came from. for that. No. Nope. And that manifests in Sister Tracy wanting to pack into a VW bug and asking her sister to babysit the plant. Well, yeah, but let's back up first, because before we get to that chaos, which I have many questions about, we get she literally goes upstairs from talking to mom and she's like, OK, Tracy, your turn. And Tracy's like, no, busy. And then she's like, no, Tracy, seriously. And Tracy's like, I have to make a very important phone call. And in what is a very real memory for me, like as those of us who grew up with a landline, like takes the phone cord and like pulls it into her room and shuts the door, which like is certainly something I did. And she so then Julie takes this as an opportunity to go pick up the extension and she tapes the phone call without listening to it in real time. And then when she hears Tracy hang up, she takes the recorder and goes in a closet and is like, okay, I'm going to like take in this phone call. And she hears something to your earlier point, which she doesn't really understand. Julie says to the closed door, mom says we're not allowed to stretch the phone cord. That's real because once it's stretched, it never springs back back. the way it used to. She then grabs a slinky. And, quote, feeling like Harriet the Spy, Julie tiptoed down the hall. I love that she's recording this phone call. I Is did it, this. I was going to say, did you love it because this was essentially you? I did this to my older sister. My older sister was far more gracious, maybe because we had a bigger age gap than Tracy and Julie seemed to. Um, this, like, this was, like, ripped from my internal, like, memoirs. The fact that Tracy is like talking about people that Julie doesn't know and they're going on and on. I did not care. My sister could be talking about anything. I wanted to listen. Like I did not. I was not there for the substance. I was there for like, this is my own one woman podcast. And my sister is the most interesting person in the world. And I need to like get this down. And I did put the microphone under the door. Did she see it? I don't know that she knew at the time. My sister knew that I eavesdropped because my bedroom wall and her bedroom wall abutted each other. And I would just put my ear up to the wall as well and listen. Wow. And it was less about like getting a specific scoop as like, I just thought her life was so interesting. I think when you have a 10 year age gap, it's like when you're six and your sister is 16, 
there is no one more fascinating in the world. Like, I didn't need tabloids. I was like, I live with my sister. Are you kidding? Yes. Yes. I mean, that's <laughs> such then, a real feeling. Yeah. The the way that she's recording and she's basically getting, again, almost like a Nixon level transcript of a date that takes place where they go to see Jaws. I did this. Like, I did this exact thing where I was like, I need to know and yes, I was a narc. Like, I did tell my mother. But that wasn't my primary objective. Like, I just wanted to know. You she just... also kept a diary. Did you read it? Yes. I don't think that's important, honestly. I don't think... No, like... Wow. I don't think that's important. I think what's important here... Wow. Is that Julie does something that I did not do, which is Julie immediately shows her hand by trying, again, it's very like 70s politician, trying to get Tracy through like an indirect means to cop to what she was just talking about on the phone. Huge mistake. You save that information for later when you might need to retrieve it. Wow. So it looks like Julie isn't the only Little Miss Watergate, perhaps, on this show. Which is Um, what she's called. Which is what she's called. So she listens in and basically Tracy went on what Julie thinks was a date. It was basically like a friend hangout where she arranged to sit next to a boy that she has a crush on. And he held her hand during a scary part of Jaws. Relatable content. I still find Jaws scary. But then after the movie, her friend is like, oh, my God, like, did he like you? Like, he held your hand. And she's like, yeah, but he told me I was chewing my gum too loudly during the dramatic parts, like at the end of the movie, which to me says like, maybe he does never crush on her or he's like nagging her, which I also find unattractive. But like Julie takes from this, like my sister has a boyfriend. Like, is that a fair conclusion? I don't know. Well, page 27, my sister has a boyfriend, exclamation point, Tracy and Matt. Tracy and Matt. I mean, she she's like case closed. I figured it out. My sister has a boyfriend. So they go back downstairs to the mom's store. They're helping her take inventory. And to your point, an, where you might have held that information <laughs> back or maybe told the mom privately. I don't know. <laughs> but she basically is like doing a subtle like a freight train thing where she's trying to get Tracy to cop to it herself. So she feels less bad or like it comes out in the open, but it like doesn't really work. So then she just like antagonizes Tracy openly with it without the mom realizing what's going on. There's a decision that Tracy makes, which is like to reveal a very specific like tidbit of trivia that she mentions to mom. Um, And Julie asks, how do you know that? My friend told me he got the poster with the picture of it at the theater. He asked Julie as in boyfriend grow up, said Tracy, another iconic grow up movie in the grow up moment in the American girl universe. When you're in high school, you can have friends that are boys. It's no big deal. Oh, my God. Should we sell a T-shirt that just says grow up exclamation point? (laughs) Oh, my God. I think so. What a moment. Tracy was always acting so superior. It is giving every big sister in every single American girl book. But then this is where Julie really presses her luck and brings up the gum anecdote, which she did not need to mention. Like, she didn't need that to was do a, that. That was her fatal mistake. Like, in the same way that Nixon's ego and pride and his, like, constantly need to get revenge were his some of his fatal flaws, this is where Julie's flaw as a spy comes out. Like, she's too obvious with it. She gets confronted with the fact that she was clearly listening in on the phone call. Um, and Julie tries to deflect by talking about homework. Basically, she's like, NATO! Like, she just tries to change she's the like, subject. She's like, we gotta go. Um, and then there's this whole idea that, like, she then taunts her with the tape. Again, very Nixon. The sister tries to take it away. And then this leads to, like, a fascinating lack of subtlety where Julie has to ask, Mom, what's Watergate? Well, because Tracy's like, Little Miss Watergate. And I was like, this is one of the greatest insults or or titles in the history of American Girl. And she says, don't you know it's illegal to tape someone without telling them? (laughs) And I'm like, Was that for our benefit? Like, are we like a two- genuinely i was like I, is this like a two consent state slash is this the author being like one of my shadow interests is the surveillance state so i'm <laughs> taking this moment to teach kids about consent and surveillance and whatever 
And like that seems to really hit Julie hard, like that question, because she's like, oh, my God, like basically like almost to Tracy, like if you're a cop, you have to tell me. And then Tracy leaves. (laughs) And when mom comes up, she just says like mom was Watergate. And you're like, oh, my God, this is like the craziest book I've read in some time. I love that she says I wasn't lying. I was just trying to tape her for my project. And I do feel like this dialogue is truly just for like girls growing up in the like I feel like this author did a lot of stuff with Occupy Wall Street and she was like, I need to get this message in there somehow if you have her permission. Otherwise, I don't want you bothering your sister with that tape recorder. Like, this person has involvement with either the FBI or with this, like, persecuted communities because she's like, people need to know the truth. I also want to know, like, what... So in one of our Patreon episodes, go check this out. If you've not joined our Patreon, please do. We read a children's book that was written to explain Watergate and it was yeah. published in the 1980s. It's on, it's crazy. It makes very little sense. It tells a very strange version of the story, but it is interesting to think like, what did kids actually know about Watergate? Cause at this point I'm like, how does Julie not know what Watergate is? Cause she asked like, it's not a rhetorical question. She's like, <laughs> mom, seriously, what is Watergate? And mom says, A few years ago, President Nixon hired people to um, spy on his political opponents. When he got caught, he lied and tried to cover it up. But some secret tapes revealed that he was lying. So he resigned from being president. That's why Gerald Ford is our president now. And it's like, that's not really kind of like what went down. But like, sure. I mean, that's like broad strokes. But it's like, what did Julie know? And when did she know it? (laughs) <laughs> and like what year does Julie think it is because in another previous scene she's playing with her recorder and Tracy like walks in on her singing I want to hold your hand by the Beatles which came out in 1964 and I'm like is like she already like nostalgic for the Beatles <laughs> like I'm like what year like what's going on like does Julie know about Watergate this is where I think that this book has one of my favorite settings and casts of characters but also has some of like a startling lack of specificity about the main character like in book one we learn that julie has to educate everyone else about the application of title nine because she read it in the newspaper but now she's never heard like of the, the biggest news story <laughs> in her lifetime and she's like mom God, this word, like, word knocking around my head, Watergate. Like, I don't know. Like, ah. Haven't heard it. So it's like, haven't heard it. I know. I can answer questions about Title IX. I cannot tell. I can't place Watergate. What is that? I do think your comment about Julie looking for ways to tell her story, like, that that is the central arc of this book. I think she is very confused. I think a lot of her identity at nine was wrapped up in being. Ivy's neighbor and like a beloved daughter to her parents and a younger sister and a girl who just loves basketball. And book one, she's thrown into this gauntlet and everything gets pushed to an extreme. And then in book two, she's asked to basically like tell the story of her life and she's utterly lost in that process. That said, like, these side characters are so fun. So fun. And even the side plots, like we get this side plot where like Tracy after this is suddenly nice to Julie again, where you're like, you literally went from calling her little Miss Watergate to being like, hey girl, like let's shoot hoops. And like, they play like a very, it seems like strenuous game of one-on-one. And then Tracy's like, by the way, I need a favor. Can you babysit? And again, like Julie is very into being like her own babysitter's club kind of from nowhere. I also thought it was strange that they were like Jaws. That's still in theaters. I thought it was still 1975, which prompted me to look up the top other films that older sister could have been seeing, which, by the way, I do feel like that was sort of like an adult film. I feel like if Tracy was down for Jaws, she could have also seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Monty Python, Stepford Wives, or a favorite of ours, which is Grey Gardens. I love Grey Gardens. Oh, my God. I would have seen that. And, like, Ben, like, it seems like she talked about going to a screening where people were, like, screaming, even if they'd seen it before. Like, kind of a Rocky Horror Picture Show participatory Also came out 75. Oh, wow. Okay. So, there you go. So, like, to me, I would prefer to do that at Grey Gardens. Like, I would be the person in the crowd screaming, like, they can get you for wearing red shoes on a Tuesday. Like, screaming at that. Like, that speaks to me more than any of the other things that you've described. And I've seen all the Jaws movies. They're not for me. I've seen one. That's enough. Yeah, it's enough. I 
was validated to see that a listener wrote to us about the fact that the jewelry that Julie makes in book one is real. The idea of using the apple seeds or other seeds to make jewelry and sent us a photo of her with a watermelon seed necklace. She also validates that a Vietnam vet in 1970 San Francisco would not be like approving of Richard Nixon. And I thank you for that, Susan. Thank you, Susan. We appreciate you. And I was also um, received some messages from other folks of this era who told me that the threat of moving to the metric system was in fact real. And, (laughs) you know, people were preparing people for a future that never materialized, much like Y2K. But basically she was like, it seems like it only showed up in like two liter soda bottles and like running a 5K. Like that's the only signs of the metric system you can still find. So thank you for that person who wrote to me. But I mean, the 70s are just like kind of a strange time because (laughs) like you have all these like weird initiatives jumping off. Like you still have some people pursuing the idealism of the 60s, but then you have like a lot of disillusionment. Like, you know, the shark who was filmed in Jaws was named Bruce. And, you know, the music of another Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, was becoming popular in this moment. And he was largely like writing about imagining himself as a Vietnam vet, like disillusioned. And I think it's really interesting to like put all of that in conversation with like Julie's own personal disillusionment. And like, how do you sit with feeling disappointed? Like, how do you like start again? Or how do you like acclimate yourself to a new normal? And I think that's a lot of like what the second half of the book is about because, you know, like there's that B plot line where she and Ivy are like playing basketball in the house, which she knows she's not supposed to do. And she like (laughs) passes a basketball to Ivy and it like hits the plant that she's supposed to be babysitting, which like we won't even get into like how bizarre that is. (laughs) And it falls out the window and smashes and they try to get, they replace a hippo planter with a pig planter and assume Tracy won't notice. As if that's not also part of the plot of Charlotte's Hello. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. Like, come on. But, you know, Tracy, to her credit, doesn't say anything about that. And then we move to this basketball game, which also has been teased the entire book, but not really spoken about against this like really difficult team with like a tough star player. And that player keeps fouling her and the fouls are not called. And she ends up being pushed to the ground and she falls on her, bends her finger the wrong way and breaks it. And in what feels like recurring trauma, dad was supposed to be at this game and he is not there. The line on page 58, where's dad? You mean he's not here, Tracy said? I just got here myself. Are you okay? Let's have a look at that hand, said Coach Manley. He was already calling for ice and a first aid kit. I think what's not said in this book that does kind of come out because both parents basically end up showing up at the emergency room and they're like, we both have to work. I feel like there's like an interesting turn that's also happening, which is that like even with a very good job, dad can't and or won't support this whole family. Yeah, I mean, which is a recurring American girl thing. It's a recurring American girl thing, but I think it's particularly hitting home for me with this character because of like the twin duality of like the president is not taking care of the country, has like let the country down, and like now dad keeps letting the family down, or like that's how it's sort of written. And we did gloss over the fact that like um, Julie was babysitting the plant so that Tracy could go to a Volkswagen Beetle stuffing party, which I'd never heard of in my life. Yeah. Um, had you ever heard of that? I had only because my mother drove a Beetle as one of her earliest cars. Wow. Did she do that? I don't know that she did that, but she has talked fondly about like owning a Beetle. And um, because my father has always been able to like fix cars Like, if you think of the world pre-Obama's cash for clunkers, there used to be just a lot more, like, weird cars in circulation. PT, cruisers, (laughs) etc. No, just, like, there used to just be, like, oh, that guy with, like, the weird car. You know, like, I think there was, like, more interesting things around. But it also speaks to the fact that, like, Tracy and Julie are taking their lack of supervision in different directions, and it's making Julie want to be a pre-Babysitter's Club mogul, and it's making Tracy, like, embrace the finer things in life. I mean, I was going to say regress or, like, act out, but yeah, that's also (laughs) true. I also think that this was a good choice because... At least, like, when I was, like, a teenager, there was, like, this um, poster of a Volkswagen Beetle, like, the newer version, 
that seemingly like every other girl I knew had on their wall. Like it must've been from a book fair or something, but anyway, good choice. But anyway, back at the basketball game, Julie has broken her finger. We don't know that yet. She's just gotten hurt. Dad's not there. Mom is at the bank negotiating a business loan, which we knew in advance. Also interesting that that's what she's doing. But Tracy is there (laughs) and like JT or whatever his name is, mom takes Julie to the hospital. And already you're like, this is so sad. Like Julie's hurt and her parents are nowhere to be found. And dad, we get this detail that dad has a new answering machine. So Tracy calls it and is like, basically like, where the hell are you? More recording. More recording. And we get this moment of reunion when Julie comes out with her after getting an x-ray, her fingers all bandaged up, broken. And the parents come together running down the hall and hug her. And it's like this moment of like family reunion. Yeah, but it's also strange because Julie is clearly reading a lot into the pizza moment. Yeah, so that was like a very sad moment where the dad's like, anyone hungry? Like, let's all get a pizza. After Tracy like unloads on dad, she's like, where (laughs) were you? You were supposed to be there and you weren't there. And mom defends him and is like, he had a weather delay out of Chicago. It wasn't his fault. Like he was going to be there. And then Tracy's kind of like YOLO, whatever, mom. And then dad's like, pizza, anyone? And they all get, and Julie's like, I would have broken my finger sooner. Like if I knew that we could go have pizza at our favorite pizza place that we all used to go to, we each get our own pizza. Like, oh my God. For the generation of Book It readers, this is a haunting line. Wow. I should break my finger more often. (sighs) Julie, no. no. Julie, you're not okay. They're getting the very veggie pizza. I think where this this book actually gets very like there were many times reading this where I was like, yes, you're an adult reading this. As soon as Julie started playing basketball inside, I was like, Chekhov's basketball. Here we go. We're going to break something. I knew something was going to break. We knew from the time that dad weirdly made her touch his toe where it came back together stronger. Something is breaking. She's breaking mom's trust. She's breaking the plant. She's breaking her finger. Like, it's She's all breaking bad. our hearts. When she was like, I should have broken my <sighs> finger sooner. I was like, Julie, no. Like, we need, like, an actual adult to show up in this book and be like, Julie, you okay? Like, you want to talk about it? And we're there. It's not. Miss Turner. It's not Miss Turner. It's not Hunter. dad. It's not mom. And basically, like, there's this heart to heart at the end of the book where Tracy, basically, Julie confronts Tracy and is like, why do you blame dad? And I got to find what she says, because it makes like no sense. Why? Uh, why don't you? Julie's like, I'm sorry, I broke your plan. She's like, yeah, no kidding. But like, whatever. <laughs> and she's like, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, I was gonna, Julie says, I was gonna tell you before you had to turn in your report. But when you were so mad at dad yesterday for not being at the game and letting you down, I lost my nerve. And for a few moments, Tracy was quiet, and Julie was afraid her sister was angry. But when Tracy spoke, she just sounded sad. I know I shouldn't have blown up at Dad. It wasn't his fault he wasn't at the game, but sometimes it's hard not to feel as if, well, as if he's let us down in a really big way. By leaving the family, I mean, by getting divorced. Tracy's voice quivered suddenly, and she turned away. But they both got divorced, Julie pointed out. It wasn't just Dad. It was Mom, too. It's not fair to blame the whole thing on Dad. Tracy was silent. When she turned back to Julie, her eyes were bright and she blinked a few times to clear them. You know, it's important to tell the truth, Jules. She reached over and tweaked her sister's ponytail. Besides, we're sisters and sisters have to stick together. Promise me next time you'll come talk to me and tell me. Promise, said Julie. These are two people having a completely different conversation. And what does she know, right? Like, so I think the red herring of this entire book is that Julie gets the tea, air quotes, about the Jaws date. Yes. What does Tracy know and when did she know it? Thank you. 100%. I mean, there's like a Watergate investigation within this family, which is like, yeah, Julie got some like, you know, (laughs) let's say like weak temp tea about (laughs) Tracy. But I think Tracy knows a greater truth about the parents and what's gone on there where she has endless sympathy for mom and absolutely no time for dad. And it's like, I think Tracy has come off in these books in her dealings with Julie is like actually a very nurturing older sibling, like taking her for cupcakes to help her study for her test. That was great. You know, like playing bass. That was great. Like even just this conversation, like being vulnerable with her, like all these things. And 
I like to me, it's like it's out of character. It feels out of character how she's treating dad. So it's like she again, as the readers, we don't know. We're meeting this family after a lot has ha- just happened. And we are being told basically only what Julie knows, which is very little. So it is kind of interesting to wonder, like, what else has happened in this family? You're also right that, like, this class is, like, probably not the time for Julie to actually process all of this. And she decides that she's going to play the actual interviews, which is a major leg up, except for the final part where she is going to be, quote, like, telling the truth. That was honestly, like, really (laughs) dramatic in a sense, like... Uh, also, I want to know how this tape recorder works where she's home <laughs> recuperating and she's like, I'm going to cut together like the best of all my recordings into like really like greatly produced packaged answers to each question. And I'm going to stand up in front of the class and like hit play, which kind of feels like an Andy Kaufman comedy routine move, like if not like NPR reporter or like a Wes Anderson character. But, you know, she gets up and before this, she's like, OK, how can I not have to talk about my family divorce situation with the worst thing that's happened to me? She's like, I broke my finger. Great. That's the answer I need. So she records seemingly an answer that's about breaking her finger to that question. And she lets all of the questions play. And then when she gets to that one, this is so dramatic. She hits stop yep. and she's like, Miss, whatever your name is, whose name I refuse Hunter. to remember, apparently Hunter, Ms. Hunter. I'm going to go off tape because <laughs> no I want there's no need. She's like <laughs> going off tape and like the teacher's like, okay. And it's like, literally everyone else is going off tape because they have no tape. She's like, is it cool if I go off tape? I need to improv. And she's like, oh yes. And like, I don't know. It's, it's a very strange moment, but she's like, okay. And then you're like, oh God, she's going to like bring up like breaking your bone and like growing back together stronger. And like, that's exactly what she does. And she, but it's like, there's, it's so uncomfortable, like even reading it because she's so vulnerable. Like, honestly, I was like, kudos to you for going on the journey of like being willing to be open about how you're feeling. Because I think, you know, if you think about emotions as information, like you have a feeling like you're actually getting some information. That's all you have to think about is like, okay, like, why am I feeling this feeling? Or like, what's it teaching me? And I think that's how she approaches telling the story about the divorce where she's like, I was sad, like whatever. But there's a line where it's like, basically everyone was quiet. Like you could hear a pin (laughs) drop and you're like, ah, like, I mean, I have so much affirmation for her, but also like, I could probably not do that. Or like, I'm just can't imagine at nine years old being able to do that. Also don't love the families are like bones simile. Like, yeah, honestly, you can be strong without being broken. (laughs) So just want to throw that out there to all the Hemingway fans out there. Like, it actually is okay to be entirely possible to be a well-rounded, deep, like, rich person with a, you know, interesting, complicated history and not have to go through trauma to get there. Like, you can actually, you don't need it. It's not a requirement for life. This is like, I think this is just sort of how I feel personally, because someone who grew up with like serious health problems, people would always say to me, this is such a gift, like that this is happening to you. This is such a gift. Like, wow, like this is so amazing. Like you're probably you're so you're going to be such an amazing person because this has happened to you. And I think it was all from a well-intentioned place. But what I would say to those people, like had I the like wherewithal then or now is like, do not think about something as a gift if you would not yourself re-gift it to someone else. So it might be a teacher, it might be a lesson, but it's not a gift. And I feel like that's really going on with this book. And it did not sit well with me at the end. Like, I'm happy she's in a better place, but I'm also like, it's not great. It also sent the message that like, in case of extreme emergency, right? Like, that something like a family pizza outing could only be accessed if she like broke the box, right? Like press here in case of emergency as opposed to like, oh, we're communicating, right? Because we're both still your parents. And so like her shock that they were able to be in the car together. What does Tracy know? Well, and also in book one, there's like a passing reference when the Vietnam vet is like quoting Nixon as positive advice. And he's like, and she's like, yeah, I remember Nick, my parents fighting about Nixon. And you're like, what other memories do you have about your parents fighting or about their relationship? And I also thought it was notable that when she's like calling Tracy out at the end or they're having that bonding conversation and she's like, well, I was afraid to tell you the truth because you were so mad at dad for letting you mm-hmm. down. And I'm like, he actually let you down as well. But like, it's almost like she doesn't feel like she's allowed to be upset about 
what either of the parents' decisions or choices have meant for her life. And it's kind of a both and like, you know, both the parents can both like do something that's healthy for them and it can have, you know, be sad or like have real world impact for these kids. And they're allowed to have feelings about that. But it kind of feels like Julie's like not allowed to have feelings about that. Do you think Julie Albright's It's the Story of My Life is better or worse than the One Direction song Story of My Life? When you said that, I was started singing that song in my head. I was like, I take her home. Honestly, I take her home. I'm reeling because I've rarely wanted to know about a situation more than wanting to know what's happening in the Jonas family group chat. I've wanted to know that many times in my life, and I want to know about it so bad. Yeah. Honestly, I keep thinking about Roxy and Gay's tweet of like Joe Jonas's PR team is working overtime because like, they're leaking all this stuff that's like Joe's been parenting his kids on the even though he's on the road and it's like what are you trying to imply about your like current wife's parent like skills as a parent I don't know that just seems to me like a great offense is a good defense like something is about to come out about him that's so bad that he's like I gotta do a lot of prep work so I can survive this and it's like like what is going on remember the voice now honestly it's like you know, we've had like other like, you know, remember the main it's like in the celebrity world, mm. it should have been like, remember the T-Swift breakup voicemail. And then maybe I'll never forget. <laughs> maybe some of this could have been of I don't I don't know. Um, Maybe never getting back together. We'll to I don't know. We do need to talk briefly about I'm going to say what what happens in the peak into the past. <laughs> there have been lines that will stay with me forever. Another listener's mm-hmm. favorite line that, like, the 1940s is when women started to wear pants. Of course, yes. I will never forget page 83 of this book. They're talking about integration and busing. Busing as a strategy to try to create a system of equity, right, in systems where there was not one with segregated schools. Not everyone liked the busing. Some parents didn't want their kids spending long hours on a bus. <laughs> So, oh, like, um, also, can you to read the caption for the photo that appears just above that? It's a photo of a black child and a white child holding hands while on a school bus, like through the window. One's in one row, one's in the other. And yet we learn there's nothing like a long bus ride together for Mm -hmm. making new friends. So I think (laughs) that's what happened with busing. What this is Mm -hmm. also missing the point on, right, is like. This obsession with the longevity of the ride, part of the point is that because of gerrymandering and segregation, people who lived like right next to good schools couldn't go to them. So this isn't just a matter of like people are going to geographically different places. Like this is one of the most like bizarre. This whole peek into the past is focused on education. And there's a good section about how like This was the start of major changes for students with disabilities. And then we have this. um, And it's sort of like in a few cities, most notably Boston. Okay. uh, Busing protests grew violent. Like that is factually true. Um, We then immediately switch topics because, quote, in San Francisco, busing went smoothly. And then we learned that they were facing an issue of funding as if that's also not related and that there was a promotional uh, concert called Snack. Students need athletics, culture, and kicks. <laughs> and kicks. What does mm-hmm. that have to do with Julie breaking? Like, this wasn't in the book. None of this stuff was What in the are book. we learning? That's what's fascinating to me. This is the most, like, out-of-pocket peek into the past in terms of, like, not, like, purposefully not <laughs> commenting on, like, any of the content of the books. Because it's like, we could have had more about like Title IX. We could have had more about- Mom like, getting a loan you know, as a woman? Mom getting a business Does mom have a and, like, credit the fact card? That mom, like women couldn't get credit cards until like right around this time or like bank accounts that didn't have their husband's name on it or like all of these things that would be really interesting and really important. And like the credit unions that started to fund women in particular, like women-owned businesses and- You could actually use the word feminism. We're two books in, still haven't had that word. Okay, interesting. Women's movement, nothing. Or even like talking (laughs) about how it wasn't intersectional. Like you could talk about so many different things. And instead, I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that like busing is not an important topic or the fact that like massive fundraisers start in the 70s because the state starts to divest from 
like funding education, which is in part why college tuition costs so much right now. And like all of these other things that have happened, but like, it's really weird to focus on this stuff and to just like sidestep the really important piece about it, which is like, I'm guessing that Boston gets a weird call out here because 1974 was when their busing um, really began. And it was like really, really difficult for the first two years or like contentious, like over 40 riots, a lot of history on this. Um, and actually like 20, it was only 2013 that busing in Boston was declared like basically like mission accomplished. Like you can debate whether or not like that's true, but, um, like to not talk about race, to not talk about white supremacy is like the main challenge to integrating schools or providing real equity in sports or education. Like why is this in here at all? If we're not really going to talk about it. But also, what does that have to do with the fact that, like, Julie has actually now had this miraculously smooth transition into being an athlete? Yeah. And also, like, do we have any <laughs> Black characters in this book? No, sorry. And what I'm laughing about is that, like, these topics are important, right? Like, the back of the book makes a point about how, like, hands-on learning and certain kinds of vocational learning and access to, like, stronger learning programs for persons with disabilities yes. Uh, Judith Human's uh, autobiography deals with this brilliantly, right? That like when everyone who was perceived as being disabled was put into one room, right? There was no differentiation. Yes. And it, it takes the yes. ADA, which is well after this book to actually, like none of that is in this book. So it's And, and based on protests in California, right. this is what right. kills me where I'm like, <laughs> this story is based in California. You have an Asian character in this book for the first time in the whole series, and I guess the next book is going to get more into her story and her family's history. But I'm like, why are you pointing us to the importance of like white supremacy and determining like the barrier or like creating barriers to a lot of the changes that you want to highlight if we're not actually going to talk about white supremacy? And like you're going to put Julie in a mostly like white frame or like Ivy is her like non-white friend she visits on weekends, basically. I'm like, what is going on? And like this, the fundraiser thing, I'm like. The issue with her accessing athletics was not a lack of funding at the school. It was the fact that she was a girl and they didn't want to enforce Title IX. I think when Trump has to be your ultimate plot direction, it means that you can have Melody, right, who succeeds in a certain moment and place in the civil rights era. And you can have Julie, who as like a white girl in a comfortable school system succeeds, right, or benefits from these things. Mm. But you're never asked to like put them against each other. Right. And it's yeah. like people made friends yeah. on the bus. Like that's the like caption. Right. Except that like what they should have said is like, and actually what ends up happening in Boston is like white people flee Boston and send their kids to private schools. So they're actually never on the bus. Right. Together. And, and revolt and basically. And revolts. And in 2013, they do a study of Boston neighborhoods and racial makeups of the schools to see if they're diverse and or match the population and that's in the area and it roughly is a one-to-one -one, mainly because so many white people have fled boston so i mean it's like it's a complicated question but i think like in peek into the past it would have also been interesting if they like talked about like what was happening that impacts mom as a business owner or like honestly what would happen that impacts like julie like what like is when does family therapy start like yeah. what would that have looked like i mean there's so many different areas they could have gone that would have had because i think this is more of like an emotional like personal story and i respect that but i think there's a way to do that and like give some peek into the past without i don't know like this just feels like really from nowhere if i was like 10 years <laughs> old reading this i'd be like what like i don't know like a, a concert with the grateful dead like were they in this like i don't know like it's confusing well it's about the politicization of the school system but the story was not about that the story was about like a personal right. crisis and like the one thing that does translate is the hands-on learning with tracy being asked to have this like baffling plant assignment yes which mom makes a passing comment where she's like you know like having a plant in your room is like supposed to be good for the environment. It's supposed to be good for the air in your room. And you're like, Oh, okay. Like go off mom. And it's like, okay, we're going to get some environment stuff. And it's like, Nope, that's a, a throwaway line. But you want to know like more, like that could have been another great peek into the past, like the environmental movement. And maybe we'll get more of that as we go on. I don't know. I believe this that's book four. Ride. I think we're going to get okay. some more politics. I think we're going to get a new year story. There's a horse at some point. I think somebody runs for office. Oh, God. I want to know the truth about dad. Like if you have the dossier, just send it to us. We won't name you. Like we can have more discretion than Julie. We need information. 
we yeah, need the information. Like I'm, I'm prepared to receive it. Like I'm having fun with Julie. I'm excited. Like we got to spend Labor Day with her, and like Labor Day, iconically is like her family's move day. Like we're going into Chinese New Year. Never forget. I'm very excited. Actually, I'm guessing. I'm actually not certain what the plot of the next book is, but you can tell us. Like this was Julie's story. Yes. And now we want to hear your story. I mean, I almost feel like we should do another fan fiction challenge. We haven't done one in a long no. time, but like this seems like ripe for people telling wild stories. So if you want to do that, write to us, let us know. Um, so Allison, if people want to contact us about Watergate, Dad, or fan fiction, where should they find us? Gosh, I am at Julie Albright's tape recorder. No, I'm at Allison Horrocks on all the things, including X. I guess I'll concede that that's what it's called. Um, you can also wow. follow the show primarily on Instagram, Dolls of Our Lives podcast. Mary, or should people find you? You can find me at Mimi Mahoney, although should I change my handle to Little Miss Watergate? I mean, I'm thinking Little Miss it. Watergate is iconic. You might get, I still follow Richard Nixon on Twitter, so. Okay, fair enough. Should we sell shirts that say Little Miss Watergate? I think Little Miss Watergate would sell. I think it would sell. Yeah, and Grow Up. I think Grow Up has had a market. Okay, so that's not... Tell us what you want, like, our Watergate shirts to say, but I feel like I need one. And, yeah, get to, get at me on Instagram. I'm at MaryMahoney123 on X, I guess, <laughs> um, is what we're calling it. But um, I mainly just, like, read stuff there, and I forget to check those DMs. So get back. I'm behind on my Instagram DMs, but I will... Write, I do write everyone back. I'd love to hear from you. Join our Patreon. Go listen to our episode about a children's book on Watergate from the 1980s. It's as nuts as you think it might be. And so much more. We're covering a new book on teen shows from the 1990s in October. Very excited about that. We have some other great things coming up. And please pre-order our book if you've not done so. We're excited. Coming out November 7th, coming to you soon. It's our story. It's our story. Yeah. I mean, did we record ourselves telling it? Who knows? We'll never say. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>